I'm Alex Guntag with Public here with Ben Scallon from Gripped Media in Ireland. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Doing very well. Good to speak to you today, Alex. Uh, great to talk to you. Um, so can you just start off by introducing yourself uh, and the work you're doing? So yeah, I'm a journalist and commentator with the Irish news site Gripped.ie. We're based in Dublin and we started a couple of years ago in 2019, I believe, uh, in the wake of uh, Ireland's abortion referendum. So basically we had this big uh, national vote on whether or not Ireland should legalize abortion. We were historically a pro-life country, a very Catholic country. And when that vote went in the liberal direction, a lot of people were really shocked, uh, conservatives in particular, because uh, they realized that a big reason for that result was the fact that there was no space in the media ecosystem that was expressing views of an alternative nature or a conservative nature to sort of uh, counter liberal orthodoxy. And so in in the wake of that, kind of out of that environment came Grip.ie, which is just sort of a conservative-leaning news site. We do regular news stories. We do commentary and things of that nature. But we cover all kinds of topical issues like COVID-19, for example, when that was big in the news, we covered that. Uh, climate issues, social issues, things of that nature. And so that's kind of where we fit into the Irish media landscape. And that's that's what I do for a living. And uh, it, uh, to be honest, if I wasn't doing this for a living, I'd just be ranting in my kitchen about the exact same stuff to my wife. So uh, better that it be directed somewhere, hopefully a little bit more productive. Uh, okay, yeah, probably I would do the same. Um, <laughs> But uh, so this was it this morning that you um, asked the prime minister a question about the hate speech bill? Yeah, it was. So uh, in Ireland, we've got this hate speech legisla legislation, so-called hate speech, if, if you view that as a meaningful term, I don't. But uh, there's, there's this legislation that's been making its way through our parliament for a couple of years now. And uh, the goal is as always with hate speech, to effectively criminalize certain types of uh, rhetoric that are in no way uh, violent. You know, of, of course, everybody agrees that if somebody says, uh, that, you know, they want to threaten somebody else or there's a call to violence or something of that nature, uh, that's already legislated for and that's already been illegal for decades in Ireland. That That's totally covered. So what this is talking about is specifically holding an opinion that somebody else deems to subjectively be offensive or hateful, which, as we know, is a totally uh, uh, undefined, undefinable term. I mean, how, how can you prove that something is hateful uh, and who gets to decide that? And this piece of legislation in particular, the way it's laid out is extremely radical, uh, even by the standards of most liberal countries. For example, one of the uh, provisions in it is that if you're found with uh, material, so let's say papers or, or something on your phone or something like that, that's deemed to be uh, hateful, uh, you can be convicted of being believed to intending to, to be intending to distribute it, if you know what I mean. So you don't even have to be found handing out these pamphlets. Uh, you could just, uh, the police could say, well, we think we believe you were going to. And on that basis, uh, you're you're in legal trouble now. So 
uh, it's not. It doesn't take a genius to figure out how something like that could be mm-hmm. abused to a, a radical degree. And so that's basically a huge debate that's happening in Ireland as this is progressing further and further. And it actually looks like it's going to be signed into law relatively soon. And isn't there a provision also which says if you are found to have hateful material, you'll be presumed guilty of the intent to spread it, not presumed innocent? Yeah, that's that's correct. So the the onus is on you as the accused person to prove that you didn't intend to spread this allegedly hateful material, which, I mean, first of all, from a logic perspective, everybody knows it's almost impossible to prove a negative. How do you prove <laughs> you weren't going to do something like that? That doesn't yeah. make sense. And then yeah. also just from a uh, the the standpoint of Western justice, We've never done things that way where the accused mm-hmm. person has to defend themselves from an allegation. If you're accusing me of something, you have to prove your case that you think I did it or that I was going to do it, you know? So even even on that grounds, it's preposterous and ludicrous. So the whole thing is uh, really, really out there, even by the standards of, uh, <laughs> as I say, very radical hate speech legislation. And I believe you pointed out that 70% of the responses the government got were opposed to the measure. Is that correct? Yeah. So this is something that I've actually just uh, broken and I just found out about myself this week. So back at the end of 2019, when this idea, this this bill, it hadn't been drafted yet, but they were clearly thinking about it. The government was talking about it and they were saying, we're, you know, we, we don't think that Ireland's legislation around regulating speech is up to scratch so we want to implement these hate speech laws but they said don't worry everybody we're going to do a public consultation which always happens before any kind of big uh, (laughs) legislative move that governments make they say we're going to do this public consultation and we'll give the people the right to have their say and give their input and we'll ask all the relevant parties and so they did and they had these uh, online submissions where you could answer a survey or you could write in letters and you could say here's what I think about this and in total they got about 3600 responses so uh you know that does that might not sound it's like a lot, lot for a small country for a small country that's a relatively big deal i mean i'll put it this way when a polling company is doing a poll they usually ask about 3300 people that's considered a really good poll uh so this should be as good as gold in theory in terms of getting some feedback from how does the Vox, what's the Vox populi, how do the general public feel about this? So that, that those uh, documents, the, all, all of the responses they received were on the Department of Justice website, but they were sitting there and nobody had really looked through them because what kind of psycho is going to sit down and go through thousands and thousands of submissions? You know, that's not really a, a feasible or practical thing to do. But I decided that I'm the kind of lunatic who <laughs> would like to do that. So throughout this week, I basically sat down and went through every single one of them individually. And uh, I made a note in a spreadsheet of whether they were positive towards the bill, negative towards the bill, or you know neutral or mixed or whatever, I had all these different categories. And my findings were, as you say, about 73% of the responses were negative. Uh, the overwhelming majority of them said, yes, if somebody has uh, been found to be engaging in violent rhetoric where they're saying we should attack people or we should uh, you know, go kill this demographic of society, of course, that should be criminalized. That's already criminalized. But if somebody is just saying things that are offensive 
that's not something that the government should legislate for. And so what's significant about that is the government did the public consultation. They heard what people were saying. 70% of people or more said, we don't want this. And they still went ahead with it anyway. So that brings wow. me back to your initial question about the, the Taoiseach, our prime minister. Earlier today, I, I went to a press event with him and I asked him why uh, if 70% of people in your own consultation told you that they didn't want this, why are you going ahead with it anyway? And what was the point of the consultation then if you're not going to abide by uh, the results? And his his response was pretty much just that, uh, well, these things aren't always reliable and they can often be hijacked by um, kind of activist groups who will just flood it with their own responses. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much what he said. Uh, because he said, uh, oh, well, the vast majority of Irish people didn't participate in this. You know, only a few thousand people did. So you can't say it's representative of the general public's view. But I don't yeah. think he would have said that if it went his way. If 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 they were inundated with, with messages saying, oh, we <laughs> desperately want hate speech laws, get them on the books tomorrow, then that would be totally ironclad so far as he's concerned it's only yeah. the wrong way quote unquote that suddenly the, oh well we we can't trust that it doesn't mean anything right when it's something they want it's the will of the people and if the people say they don't want it then that wasn't the true will of the people <laughs> exactly um so what's okay just to back up in Ireland, has there historically been a strong free speech culture? What's kind of the broader context? Um, I think culturally, we certainly are a people who value uh, free speech. I mean, there was probably a, a lot of people would look at um, eras where the Catholic Church had more power in Ireland. I mean, I'm, I'm a Catholic myself, but people would say that there was something quite censorious about that era of history where if you posted anything, like we had blasphemy laws in the mm -hmm. constitution until just a couple of years ago, they weren't really enforced. I mean, nobody was actually being convicted under them, but we had a referendum to get rid of it as this symbolic gesture, just to say that even in principle, it shouldn't be illegal to criticize religion was the thinking. And then just a couple of years later, we implement uh, secular blasphemy laws in the form of hate yeah. speech laws, or, or at least we're about to, where uh, suddenly, you know, gender expression is not allowed to be criticized, and that's supposed to be beyond reproach, and uh, all kinds of other things of this nature, where hypothetically misgendering somebody could land you in front of a judge. Uh, so I'd say, in answer to your question, does Ireland have a history of, um, you know, free speech? I'd say that we've swapped one sort of dogmatic, uh, overly zealous regime maybe for another that, uh, yeah. and, and I think this one is actually much more virulent and worse, whatever criticisms you could level at the church hierarchy, you know, 50 years ago. And there certainly are criticisms to be made there. Uh, it's nowhere near as controlling or, uh, fanatical as the kind of cult we're dealing with now when it comes to what you're allowed to say and, what could get you in serious trouble. And so for these secular blasphemy laws, which I love the way you put that, well, who are the main uh, people who, in your opinion, seem to be driving this, whether it's the individual politicians or organizations that they're responding to? 
Well, I, I would say that Irish politicians don't really decide anything. Pretty much everything in this mm. country is decided by NGOs. We have an NGOocracy mm. or an NGOocracy, however you want to uh, pronounce that, because uh, I, I think a lot of countries deal with this to a greater or lesser extent, but Ireland is particularly bad for it. You know, there's this actually a funny story that a UN uh, representative came to visit Ireland on a kind of a diplomatic mission. This was just a couple of years ago. I was going around meeting with all these various uh, representative groups and nonprofits. And she she said, kind of half joking, half seriously, she said, is everyone in Ireland in an NGO or something? Like, what's <laughs> going on here? You know, how many of these groups are there? Because we literally have 30,000 organizations, wow. not like s- staff, but 30,000 separate groups. And the sector as a whole... Uh, is funded to the tune of about 5.9 billion euros annually with taxpayer money. And to give you a sense of scale there, because that obviously 5.9 billion, depending on what country you're in, that could mean a lot or it could mean nothing. Ireland's entire annual budget is about 100 billion. So that's like, I mean, we spend more on NGOs uh, in a year than we do on our entire justice system, the police, the courts, everything, uh, our data protection commission, um so this is a ludicrous it, chunk of money that we put towards they're, they're like massively powerful uh and they they decide a, a huge amount of what happens as far as policy goes and is the population about four four million uh yeah i think we What's just cracked p- five million like last year okay five million so you have thirty thousand organizations for five million people yeah uh what could possibly be the purpose of that well, the purpose is that you get a very nice, lucrative job if you work for one of these groups. And I'm not saying, uh-huh. by the way, that every single one of them is worthless or every everyone. You know, I'm sure there's some in there. I haven't looked at every single one of them, but I bet you you have different groups who might produce, uh, provide some kind of valuable service to society. So it's not a blanket condemnation, but you get a lot of them that are doing the same thing as one another, for example. They're, they've doubled up in terms of purpose. And so when you get these kind of so-called anti-racist NGOs, whose entire purpose is to take taxpayer money so that they can fight against racism, and then you you come to an issue like this, hate speech laws, which they're all rapidly in support of and pushing the government to, to implement, it kind of makes you stop and think, okay, well, it's in your interest to portray Ireland as a horribly racist country where bigotry is around every corner and where we need these laws to try and stamp out, uh, you know, these dangerous trends that are emerging in society, because that's kind of your raison d'etre. You know, if, if you don't have leaky pipes, then you don't need to hire a plumber. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a racist society, then you don't need professional anti-racism campaigners. So you've got this whole industry now that's been created, which needs hatred there's a real supply and demand issue when it comes to hatred that they they need it to be there but it just isn't there we're a very tolerant country we're a very civilized welcoming normal country uh and that's not really a good justification for having thousands and thousands of these uh useless organizations so they need to create this image of ireland as a spooky backwards place in order to justify their own existence yeah and it seems to me that th- there there's another factor which seems odd, which is not just that Ireland appears to be a tolerant place, but also that Ireland is a victim of 
colonialism and Irish people have been victims of discrimination, right? So it's this weird, like, you, because you're white, uh, you have to shoulder the burden of historical racism that your country isn't really necessarily a strong player in. Yeah, Do you that, have any thoughts on that? That's a huge uh, factor because, I mean, I don't believe that people should be held responsible for the uh, actions of their ancestors in general. I don't think that just because you're from Britain or just because you're from America that you should feel bad about yourself. That's that's not what I'm saying. But I think it's even more preposterous, mm -hmm. as you say, when you apply it to a country like Ireland, that not only do we never own slaves, not only do we never colonize anyone, we were victims of colonization. We were sent as indentured servants and treated mm -hmm. uh, arguably worse than slaves in some cases uh, in, in you know, the Caribbean and other areas like that. Um, so whatever about this kind of weird white guilt hang up that so many different European and Western mm -hmm. countries have, there's no justification for a country like us having any feeling like that. We didn't do anything that we should be uh, apologizing for on the world stage. Um, and it's really just... I mean, as you say, like you, we, we hear about white privilege. There's even talk about um, people in Ireland being, oh, you, you, you experience white privilege and you need to feel bad about that. Uh, to give you an example, my father was not, uh, he did not have an uncommon experience growing up in mm -hmm. Dublin. He, he grew up in a pretty normal Dublin household. And as recently as one generation ago, uh, he was living in a, a Catholic family of 11 kids uh, and all the boys were in one room and all the girls were in the other. So it was about half and half boys and girls and they were crammed in there. They sometimes wouldn't have enough food to eat. They were basically a step above homelessness. Like, like uh, I, be, I believe around uh, 100 years ago, more or less around the foundation of the state, uh, when we uh, declared independence from Britain, uh, Ireland had some of the worst slums in Europe, uh, mm -hmm. comparable to Calcutta. Uh, like my, my grandfather on my dad's side, he remembered when they were putting electricity into his village you know so this is the kind of like deprivation we're talking about i don't know what kind of privilege being white is supposed to have conferred on uh any of my ancestors yeah. but it certainly didn't doesn't look like it is there any sort of like discussion uh in your media sphere of ireland having changed out one form of colonialism for a new one like the ngo colonialism yeah, that's that's something that I think my my publication talks a bit about, uh, and and I think another example of that, in my own personal opinion, would be the European Union. I think uh, the amount of uh, rights we've ceded to the EU. Like I don't, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but uh, the European law actually supersedes the Irish Constitution. So if there's a conflict between the two documents, mm -hmm. the European law wins out every time. As just one example. Um, so, you know, when you look at things like that, it, it makes me look back at some of our, like our rebel heroes that fought during the 1916 rising, the war of independence and what they were trying to achieve. And it makes me wonder if they were to take a step back and look at the way Ireland is controlled by special interest groups and unelected NGOs and, you know, guys with unpronounceable names in Brussels who nobody's ever heard of. It makes you wonder, is this really the 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 goal that we were all dreaming of and that we mm -hmm. shed our blood for for hundreds and hundreds of years? I'm not really sure this is it, guys. I don't think this is exactly what they had in mind. 
We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.